Chapter Two of One Thing Needful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One Thing Needful by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Two Whence and What Art Thou, Execrable Shape? Colonel Spillington dined at Lashmark Castle upon the night before the meeting. He was a fine average specimen of the British officer, bluff, outspoken, unintellectual, right-thinking and honest, a staunch conservative and a thorough gentleman. He was a man of just sufficiently good family to be tolerable in the eyes of the great Lady Pitlin's daughter. There was at least no taint of trade in his lineage, and he was therefore qualified to sit at the table with the lady whose wealth had for the most part come out of the coal-pit, and who naturally scorned the idea of commerce. He was not elated about his election, and had dark doubts as to the power of the radicals in Brom. "'There must be some respectable people in the place,' he said. "'I fear not,' replied her ladyship. "'If there were any respectable people, such a person as Boldwood would not be allowed to exist.' Unfortunately for us, mother, the days are past when an obnoxious citizen could be sent about his business, or even put in the pillory. Boldwood is peaceable enough in his private life, I believe, although he is somewhat truculent on the platform." "'Somewhat,' echoed Lady Lashmar. "'You have such a namby-pamby way of expressing yourself.' "'I have never heard the creature speak, but I have read his virulent nonsense in the papers, and that is enough.' "'Virulent sometimes, I grant, but not always nonsense,' said Lashmar quietly. "'The man's ideas are utopian, but he expresses himself with a certain rough vigour, and with a strain of poetry. In fact, the man is a born orator, and although he is for the most part illogical, he has occasional flashes of common sense.' "'Who is this Boldwood?' asked the Colonel, trifling with an olive. Everybody has been talking to me about him since I consented to stand for Brom, and as I am a stranger in the land and his reputation is entirely local, I confess myself still in the dark as to this powerful antagonist whom I am to meet tomorrow night. Mr. Boldwood is a high priest of advanced radicalism, answered Lashmar. He believes in the divine right of every man to lay hands upon any other man's possessions. He is strong upon the old thesis. La propriété c'est le vol. The first man who enclosed a bit of ground was the enemy of the whole human race. He is the sworn foe of the landowner and the manufacturer. His gods are Rousseau and Karl Marx. He would level all ranks, wage war against all privileged classes, raise this house of ours to the ground, or turn it into a hospital or phalanstery, do away with monarchy and the House of Lords, and establish a Republican Senate of workingmen in which the brain-workers or the professional classes should be as one in three. He would have universal peace, universal free trade, and pending the falling in of other nations with these views, he would have England walk in gospel ways, and turn her left cheek to be smitten by the hand that has boxed her soundly on the right cheek. You say he is a good speaker? I have never heard him, but I am told that he is magnificent and his speeches read like oratory. I am looking forward to the fun tomorrow night. We may be in a minority, 
but there are plenty of conservatives in Brum, in spite of her ladyship's doubts, and we shall make a good fight. From what I have heard of Boldwood, he is not altogether a ruffian. Indeed, there are some people who declare that he is a gentleman by birth, and took a degree at Oxford. Yet I should hardly think this likely, from the appearance of the man. He was pointed out to me once in the street as I was driving through Brum, a giant with unkempt hair, disreputable clothes, and a slouching walk. I hardly saw his face, but I got a good idea of his build and general style. He is a brass-worker, earns high wages, and is said to be almost a genius in his handicraft. He is not a native of Brum. I don't think anyone in the place knows much about his antecedents. He is an infidel and seems proud of his infidelity. He came to the town seven years ago with a wife and a baby. The wife died soon after his arrival, and he has not remarried again. That, Colonel, is the full extent of my information about Jonathan Boldwood." "'I am looking forward to my encounter with the gentleman,' said the Colonel cheerily. "'He shall see that I can stand fire. But I look to you to reply to him. I am no orator.' A gentleman is always more than a match for a cad," said Victorian, who had been making havoc with the peaches while his elders were talking. Not when the cad is on his own ground, and has an audience of five or six hundred cads to back him up," answered Spillington. How many does your town hall hold, by the way, Lashmar? Fifteen hundred. And of those, you may be sure that more than half will be disciples of Boldwood. But that need not alarm you as not half of those are voters." The meeting was at eight o'clock, so the house-party at the castle took a late luncheon and started for Brum soon after tea. Supper after the meeting was to serve as a substitute for the eight o'clock dinner. This had been duly explained to Colonel Spillington, who liked his meals and thoroughly approved of the Lashmar chef. He laid in a heavy stock at luncheon calculating that there was a terrible gulf to be bridged over before he should again find himself face to face with substantial food. He detested tea and cakes and muffins and all those dainties with which Victorian gorged himself at five o'clock, when the little party assembled in Lady Lashmar's morning-room, full of the approaching fray. "'Do have some of these chocolate cakes, Colonel,' said Victorian, with his mouth full. "'They're so good!' Thanks, no, my boy. I haven't tasted sweets for the last twenty years, and I'm afraid of tea. It always turns to acidity. If, with a deprecating glance at her ladyship, if I might have a brandy and soda. By all means, assented the dowager graciously, though she inwardly scorned a man who wanted to be periodically sustained by brandy and soda. Lashmar rang the bell. A little Dutch courage, eh, Colonel? he said, laughing. "'You're beginning to funk Boldwood, I know,' said Victorian, and I don't wonder. He looks like one of those fellows in Homer, Cyclops, don't you know? I've heard that he lived for ever so many years with the gypsies, and that his wife was a gypsy girl. He's a rough sort, Colonel, and I shouldn't wonder if he wanted to come to fisticuffs with you on the platform.' "'If he comes to fisticuffs, I'm ready for him.' answered Spillington gaily. It's the talking that will bother me. They started soon after six, intending to be early at the town hall, where the candidate had to meet his agent 
and some of the conservative notabilities of Brum. It was a delicious summer evening, calm, peaceful, the atmosphere steeped in sunlight, the earth breathing warmth and perfume. A delightful evening on which to lull against the cushions of Lady Lashmar's barouche, to be gently lulled upon sea springs, as the seventeen-handers trotted with rhythmical bent along the level turnpike road. A lovely road for the first half of the journey, a road between fair green pastures and golden corn, by wood and copse and hillocky commonland, where the dwarf firs shone yellow against the purpling heather, a road by peaceful village and Elizabethan homestead, by straw-yards populous with lazy kine, by piggery and poultry-yard, and duck-pond and cattle-trough. Colonel Spillington, who was of the street streety, thought that the country was a pretty place enough in the westering sun, but that it had an ugly smell and must needs be the abomination of desolation in the winter, except for a hunting man. And Colonel Spillington had nothing in common with that great creature, the British sportsman. He had shot tigers and bears, and had stuck pigs in Hindustan, but he did not appreciate the raptures of waiting about at corners for a reluctant fox in the northeast wind, or a chilly drizzle. "'A charming country,' he said patronizingly. "'But I wonder you can live so many months in the year at Lashmar Castle.' "'I am fond of the country, and Lashmar detests London,' answered her ladyship. "'I dare say, when Victorian grows up, I shall spend more of my time in Grosvenor Square.' I am not going to live in London," said her son disdainfully. When I leave the university I mean to see life. I shall travel all over Europe. I mean to be a man of the world." "'You had better stay in London if you want to see life,' said the Colonel. The man who has not learned his society alphabet in London is always half a savage. It is all very well to talk about the superiority of foreign manners but the man who has been educated on the continent is generally a tiger." "'Then I will be a tiger,' retorted Victorian stoutly. They were nearing Brum, and there was an unmistakable change in the atmosphere. The fine gold had become dim. That pure radiance of the westering sun was thickened and blurred, yet beautiful exceedingly athwart the smoke-clouds. The tall shafts began to show against the blue horizon a veritable grove of chimneys. And soon her ladyship's splendid barouche, with its big bay horses, white-wigged coachmen, and powdered footmen, its emblazoned panels and brazen harness, was thrilling the souls of operatives and factory girls as it flashed along the dingy crowded streets, past the beer-shops and the pork-butchers, and the general dealers, and the bakers amidst odors of tallow and herrings, and onions and shoe-leather and beer. The street-boys called out, Hooray! as the carriage went by. One keen-eyed brat caught the distorted profile of Lashmar's back, and cried out, My eye! Look at the hunchback! Lashmar's quick ear heard, and his thin lips contracted ever so slightly, with the faintest expression of mental pain. He had heard just such a speech many a time before. It did not come upon him as a revelation. He knew that he was a creature apart, marked out and branded by nature. Wealth and rank and culture could never undo what nature, in one blundering moment, had done. The hand that had turned out so many thousands of ploughboys and operatives, beggars and rascals, perfect from head to heel, 
had faltered in the making of the last Lord of Lashmar, and he must pay the penalty of fate. He bore the disgrace as patiently as he bore that other and heavier burden of neuralgic pain which had wrung his weak frame at intervals ever since he could remember. He had fought against long odds, had exercised that poor weak body of his to the utmost, rowing, riding, walking. He, the hunchback, was a skilled gymnast, but he had never exhibited his skill in any public gymnasium. His own keen sense of the ridiculous hindered any such foolish vanity. The meeting had been convened by the local conservative association, but it was not a ticket meeting. The hall was to be open to all comers, and the hall was crammed to overflowing before the speeches began. The great oblong room reeked with unwashed or badly washed humanity, a multitude clad in long-worn corduroy and fustian, simmering in the glare of the gas. To Lady Lashmar, seated on the platform, that sea of faces in that coarse flare of yellow light suggested an overpopulated pandemonium. They looked like devils, some of those operatives, to her unaccustomed eye. Malignant devils, swarthy, grinning, lurid. The chairman opened the business in a mildly conventional manner. Recapitulated the usual commonplaces. The country was on the eve of a great crisis, a crisis involving national interests and individual interests alike, trade, security, prosperity, peace at home, honor abroad. The time had come when the Conservative Party were called upon to emerge from that shade in which their modesty delighted. The time, in short, after a great deal more to the same purpose, had come for a long pull and a strong pull and a pull together. This was the chairman's popular style, which he had generally found answer before a mixed audience. But on this present occasion, before the conservatives could begin their applause, a hoarse voice at the back of the hall called out, "'Yes, and pull the boat over! That's about what you conservatives generally does when you do pull together!' And there was a laugh which spoiled the effect of Mr. Mason Banks' peroration. And now it was time for the candidate to introduce himself, which he did in a somewhat rambling speech upon old, old lines. The men of Brum had heard such speeches ever since they had possessed ears to hear political discussion. Colonel Spillington was a poor orator, and he had nothing new to say. But he was hardy, and he had a pleasant manner. He had the courage of his opinions, too, and threw some pretty big stones at the opposite party, in the teeth of hisses and groans from the majority, for it appeared as if the radicals were the most numerous. They were certainly the loudest. It might be that noise prevailed over numbers. Before the colonel could sit down, a man stood up in the middle of the hall, an anak, a giant among dwarfs, for the men of Brum were stunted by unhealthy toil. A dark, threatening face was turned towards the platform, full in the glare of the gas. A large face with a broad forehead, high cheekbones, and massive jaw, flashing eyes under shaggy brows, and a shock of coarse black hair. Lashmar looked at that face transfixed. He had seen it before, seen it years and years ago, in a dream, before he was born, yes, in some mystical interior life as it seemed to him. He knew its every line. Yes, those liniments were graven deep upon the tablets of memory. End of chapter 2